Father, you are incredible. You're the only one that can raise the spiritually dead to life. You woke her up at the last moment. She received you. You are full of mercy and grace. You pour out your grace upon us if we will simply believe and put our trust in you. How great and awesome you are. Father, we want to be challenged today. We ask that you teach us from your word and you'd help us that as we contemplate the amazing grace of your love, that we would not compromise as we live this life for you. Help us and teach us about that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, it's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. That's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And we are at this section, chapters 2 and chapter 3, are seven different mini letters that Jesus wrote to these different churches and what we can learn from them for our church. But this particular one, and I want to say this, there are heroes and there are failures of the faith. And the heroes don't compromise. I think of, and, but what we're going to see here with the church of Pergamum is that this church compromised the truth, tragically. I think of the heroes. I, I think of Rachel Scott, uh, the movie I'm Not Ashamed is about her life. She was a teenager who was in high school going kind of back and forth, one foot in the world, one foot with Jesus, and then she finally made a decision, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to surrender to Him, and she began, she began to minister to people, and she wanted to reach millions, that was her call, that's what she felt like, and then that fateful day, the Columbine massacre, where the uh, neo-Nazi said, do you still trust in Jesus, and she said, yes, I do, and he killed her, she died for her faith, but her story changed millions. She knew that somehow. She's a hero. One of my heroes is Keith Green. You guys remember him? Keith Green? He wrote an album called No Compromise. And uh, this, this album really affected me in my early walk with the Lord. And so I, I found a video clip of an old, early time when Keith Green is singing a, a song. So I want you to watch this. It's a little funny at the beginning, but just let's watch this song. This next song is, uh, well, it's, it's definitely a song. It's interesting. Uh, do you know, a lot of Christians feel like uh, if they give their once, once a week to the Lord, they're doing real well, especially if they go every week. It's kind of like visiting a friend in jail, you know, like once a week on Sundays, you know, visiting hours. Hi, Lord. How, how are you doing, Lord? Are they treating you okay in here? Is the food all right, Lord? We're working on getting you out soon. You know, and then they... You, I remember never... I'll, Never forget the first. 
I'll never forget the first time I wrote out my first tithe check. It was kind of like... And Satan came and told me, you still got 90% left. I went, yeah, 90% for me. The Lord goes, for who? Oh, hi, Lord. Well, that's kind of a joint account. Tell you what, I won't make any heavenly decisions. You don't spend any of my money. But you see... Uh, I was, I was sitting around one day, I had this melody, and I just taught a Bible study on, uh, remember Saul, king in the Old Testament? God told him to do something, and he did half of it, patted himself on the back and gave the other half to the Lord as a sacrifice. The Lord said, I don't want your sacrifice, I want your obedience. You get the point, and we could. You, you wanted to listen to it, yeah. I, do you remember that? You, you, if you remember Keith Green, man, this that that shaped who I am today. Uh, guys like that um, that influenced me. I want to say I am a product of the Jesus movement back in the seventies. The Jesus movement, where they said there's one way to heaven, and that's it. Uh, they they were either in Bible studies or evangelizing the lost or both at the same time. And that's what that, I mean. That was the the life uh, praising God with all your heart, preaching that Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, evangelism was a way of life, and this message no compromise. It was that was probably the greatest revival that's ever happened on in this country. More people came to Christ and were changed by that movement. And it had its problems as well as everything does. But there, that, I want to see that happen again. That revival that where everybody, the people of God just had this commitment, surrender, no compromise. This is how you live your life for Jesus Christ. Because the greatest danger for churches and individual Christians today 
is compromise. And tragically, that's where we see this church. The church at Pergamum blew it. Let's read. Chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And so here we see this mini letter to Pergamum following the same pattern as all seven of these letters where first he starts out with a message of who Jesus is, taking it from the vision that he originally saw in chapter 1 of Jesus Christ. Then he gives a commendation, something they were doing right. Then he rebukes them for something they were doing wrong. And then he gives them the promise to the church who is faithful, the challenge by the reward that they're going to receive. And so we follow this. We see the same pattern. And he starts out in verse 12. Jesus is characterized by judgment. Did you see that? He says... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, the double-edged sword that he's referring to, and it was in his mouth we see in the, first, in the first vision, this is clearly a sword of judgment. As he says very clearly in verse 16, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so we see that this, this sword of judgment, Christ is characterized by judgment. So often people think, you know, oh, the God of the Old Testament is this mean guy, but the, you know Jesus in the New Testament is really nice. But here we see that, yes, he's loving, but he's also going to judge by his word because the sword is the word of God. We know that from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Turn there. Hebrews 4, verse 12, we see a similar analogy of the word of God as a sword. And he says, for the word of God is alive and active. Speaking of God's word, the scriptures. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the Word of God, it is alive, and it is this double-edged sword. Being double-edged, it hurts and it heals. It cuts and it cures. It is an instrument of life and of death. Our response 
to it, to the word, makes all the difference. How will you respond to the word of God? You see, because Jesus recognized, taught, Matthew 5 and other places, that God's word is our final authority. You see, we all have a final authority, something that we ultimately decide what's right and wrong, true and false from. And most people, it's out of their, their thinking or their feelings. And listen, our feelings, our feelings, they come and they go. They're up and they're down. They're changed. How can that be the final authority? The Word of God remains true always at all times. Our thinking is, is small. We're finite creatures and we're influenced by our own sinful nature. So how could that be the final authority? But God's Word, it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore profitable for teaching, correction, training, and rebuking so that we will be complete. God's Word, that's His plan. <laughs> Some people, you know, you, know you, you say, well, you know, yeah, okay, but you believe the Bible. What about people who don't believe the Bible? You know, we can't use God's Word on them, can we? God's Word is alive. Doesn't it say that, right? You think about this. The Word of God changes people when they hear it. It's kind of like if you uh, had this guy, you know, he's gonna, you're going to go to battle with this guy, and you have this super double-edged sword, right? You're a samurai expert. And you're like, and the guy looks at you and says, I don't believe in that sword. You look at it, you look at him, you go, oh, and you throw it down. That's dumb, okay? It works. It's, it's alive and active. We believe it's our final authority. We live out that word, trusting it, because God's word will be the judge in the end. How did we respond to his word? Look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 28 and 29. In Jeremiah, we see this, the context of this as he's speaking about these false prophets who were uh, deceiving the people of God. And Jeremiah and God himself was very angry. And we see in verses 28 and 29, it says this, let the prophet who has a dream recount the dream, but let the one who has my words speak it faithfully. For what is straw to do with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? My notes uh, in my study Bible says their dreams, uh, speaking of the false prophets, are as different from the true revelation of God's word as valueless straw is different from precious grain. God's word is like fire and a crushing hammer compared to their insipid and irrelevant pronouncements. God's word is awesome. It is our final authority. It's going to be the judge. And Christ here is characterized as the judge who will judge all mankind by his word. So that's Jesus. That's the picture of Jesus. And then we see the commendation. So they are commended. They were doing something right. In verse 13, we see that the church is commended for its faithfulness. It starts out really well. Look at what it says. 
I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. They were faithful even where they lived. And God says, I know where you live. I know the situation you live in and how difficult it is. It specifically says here for the church at Pergamum, it's where Satan's throne is. Now, there's different opinions as to what they might have been referring to uh, in Pergamum. Uh, a part of the city was kind of almost shaped like a throne, so they thought maybe that's what it's referring to. Uh, it was the place where the the great altar to Zeus, Zeus Soter, Zeus the Savior is what the altar was called. And it was, it was one of the seven great uh, ancient wonders of the world, this monster statue. So maybe it was referring to that or it could have uh, referred to um, they worshiped the God that, you know, the medical symbol with the snake on it, uh, Ascalis, something like that, uh, that, that okay, yeah, uh, that that symbol comes from that particular God. They had a major worship place for them, for, for him. Uh, so maybe that's what it was, or uh, or just the the worship of the emperors that they practiced. So we see this, but whatever it was, he, he called it Satan's throne. They were in a very difficult place, yet they didn't fall for the idolatry. They remained faithful even with uh, the martyrdom. Uh, and, and so forth. So, so we see that they were faithful, and so therefore we must be faithful where we live. I know where you live. I know what it's like is what he's saying. And he's calling us to be faithful wherever we live. You know that every area has its unique difficulties because of spiritual warfare. The book of Daniel teaches that there are different demonic strongholds over different areas of the world. Um, With Pergamum, it was very educated. It had the second largest library in the Roman Empire. Alexandria had the first largest. So very educated and very idolatrous. I told you about the idols to Zeus and and so forth. Uh, I I think of our country the different areas of our country. The East Coast rudeness. I mean, I lived there. I experienced it. (laughs) The West Coast narcissism. I mean, it's just all about me. They don't even know anyone else is around. That's how it seems in so many cases. Uh, Southern prejudice at times, tragically. Dallas, greed. Utah, a religious, I mean, when you just cross the border, you almost sense this religious oppression. So what are the spiritual forces over St. Cloud? That's what we want to try to recognize here. Um, I think of German frugality, which is a good thing in and of itself, but it can easily become stinginess. Uh, I think of uh, the religion rather than the relationship that really hovers over this city. The liberalism in the university. Islam is now making its inroads. And I say all this not to get you to fear. That's not it at all. There's no fear in this. They were not called to fear. They lived in the place where Satan's throne was. Pergamum did. 
So not to make us fear or anything like that, but to be aware of how to pray. What, what are the, t- the, the prevalent spiritual forces and warfare that we need to deal with? How to pray, how to witness, and how not to fall. Now, tragically, sometimes in reaction, we go to the opposite extremes, and so we don't want to do that either. And by the way, you personally will have unique struggles because of your life, whatever you've gone through. Jesus is saying, I know where you live. And he'll be there for you. He'll help you to remain faithful. But we must remain faithful where we live. And we must be faithful in our witness. He then talks about how you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas was martyred. That word uh, for witness, martus, martyros, that is, means witness. He, he was the ultimate witness by being killed for his faith. Uh, Antipas may have been the pastor of their church. There is a tradition that says that he was roasted to death in a brass bowl during the reign of Domitian. Daniel Aiken's commentary quotes a book. He says, In the global war on Christians, respected author and journalist John Allen notes that 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed against Christians. When it comes to deaths, 90% of all people killed on the basis of religious beliefs in the world today are Christians. Depending on who is counting, there are 100,000 to 150,000 new Christian martyrs every year. We're called to be faithful even to death for Jesus Christ. And the church is commended at Pergamum. The church is commended for its faithfulness. But then it receives a rebuke. And the church is condemned for its compromise because of its uh, lack of commitment and surrender as we will see I, I have a little story about commitment I wanted to read you a chicken and a pig passed a beggar sitting on the sidewalk they discussed some way to help him the chicken proposed they give him a breakfast of ham and eggs the pig replied From you, that's just a gift. But from me, that is total commitment. God calls us to total commitment, no matter what the cost. And tragically, that's where they failed. We see that they compromised morally. Verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So they were listening to the teachings and embraced the teachings of Balaam. So what, 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 what does that mean? Balaam, if you remember, if you've read your Old Testament, Balaam was a, a non-Jewish prophet who Balak asked to curse, to come and curse the Israelites because he was afraid of the Israelites. And so 
Balaam is asked to curse him, and Balaam's thinking, okay, I can get some money out of this deal. So he was thinking about it. He actually got rebuked by the donkey. Remember that part? Okay. okay that's a, but God takes him there. He goes and he speaks. And four different times he's called to curse Israel, and he can't. God wouldn't let him. In fact, he ends up blessing Israel all four times, and we have some incredible prophecies from that, even predict, predicting the Messiah in that. And so, you know, you see that and you go, wow, Balaam ended up being a pretty good guy. But that's not what happened. Tragically, just a few chapters later, we see that because of his greed, he still wanted to help Balak, and he came up with another idea. And his idea was, take your prostitutes and go and entice the men of Israel, and they'll fall into that sin, and that will bring disrepute to them. And that's exactly what they did, and it worked. Because they were enamored by the culture around them and fell into the sin, compromising morally. The church, the culture shaped their thinking and lifestyle. Romans 12, 2, though, says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So then you'll be able to understand the good and perfect will of God. Do you want to know God's will? Do you want to hear his voice? He says, don't conform to the patterns of this world. But it's really easy to conform because we are bombarded by the way the world thinks in everywhere we go. So how do we, rather than being conformed, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you need to recognize that it doesn't say transform yourself. It's a passive verb. Be transformed. You don't change yourself. You don't have the power. You allow God to transform you. And you put yourself in places where you can receive that transformation that comes from God by experiencing His presence. If you are, and specifically it says transformed by the renewing of your mind through God's word primarily. If you are not daily digging into God's word and weekly involved in a local church, you will be conformed and eventually compromised. Pergamum means thoroughly married. That's what the word means. And the church at Pergamum was thoroughly married to its culture. And that was not a good thing. And so we can compromise morally. We can compromise theologically. And we see that in verse 15. He says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've been introduced to this group before because one of the previous churches was actually over, overcame it and didn't re- receive the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Basically, what the Nicolaitans taught, they were libertine Gnostics. Okay, I'll have to explain that. <laughs> libertine Gnostics. Gnosticism was a full-blown coat cult in the second century, but it was already starting in the first century, at the end of the first century, where they embraced some of the teachings of Jesus, but they also took uh, much of their teachings from the Greek uh, philosophers and ways of thought, uh, especially Plato and others, okay? And so they had this view, this belief that 
the world, the, the universe, the physical matter was evil in and of itself. And so salvation was to be released from the physical matter. Now, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. God created the, the world, and he said it is good. Okay? So, so they, they are changing things. They, not only that, they believed in a different Jesus because the Jesus who became a human being, they couldn't embrace. No, he had to only seem like he became a human being. And so they had a different Jesus. They also... Now, there were two forms of Gnosticism. Okay? If you, and the way you were saved from... The, the physical realm was just through this secret wisdom that you got through their cult. So it was just a secret wisdom. It was all up in the brain. And with that, there were two different types of Gnosticism, okay? Some believed, since we're being saved from the physical realm, the physical realm is, is evil, so we should have nothing to do with the physical realm. So they, they were very ascetic. They beat themselves. They denied themselves all pleasure and all that. But the other side of Gnostics... They were the opposite, and that's what the Nicolaitans were, okay? Very much like the teachings of Balaam. They believe since the physical realm's evil and we're going to be saved from it, it doesn't matter what you do right now, so just go ahead and live all, you, all the sin you want. And that's how that, that was the teaching that they were falling under. And he's saying that's wrong. I see a similar idea of this. This is what's happened, okay? Back in the 70s, 70s were Anyway, back in the 70s, there was this, uh, you know, the great revival and into the 80s. But then in the later 80s, the church, it began to teach the gospel in kind of a truncated way. It started, many, many people, not everybody, but many people, they would say basically, it's all just in the head. If you just believe these facts about Jesus, say this little prayer, you get your fire insurance. And that's a half gospel, which is a false gospel. A gospel without repentance is not the true gospel. A gospel without the, the heart surrender to the Lord is not a true gospel with a love for God that comes about from this. And so there's this, there was this almost Gnostic way of presenting the gospel. But in true Christianity, you have to have the right God and you have to have the correct gospel. We can compromise theologically, and that tragically was what the Nicolaitans had embraced. And so he calls them in verse 16 to repent. Sinners are called to repentance. He says, repent therefore. Repent means to have a change in mind and heart about your sin so much that it does bring about a change in your lifestyle. And so he said, stop that. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Did you notice the difference there, the us and them in that? Isn't that interesting? I will come to you and fight against them. Because within the church, there was this contingency that had embraced this false gospel, the, the teachings of Balaam, the practices of the Nicolaitans, and he says, I'm going to fight against them. Do we want Jesus to come into the church and fight against us? Wow. That's what he's calling. This is the seriousness of the matter that we must recognize. The church is condemned for compromise. No compromise. Now, the church is challenged by its reward. And he concludes with this wonderful reward, verse 17. Whoever has ears, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The rewards that come when Jesus comes back, especially, listen, the pleasures of this world are nothing compared to what God has in store for us. Both now, even in part, but fully when he returns. He talks about this hidden manna, okay? You remember the manna in the uh, Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years? God provided them nourishment through manna, this special uh, miracle that would take place every morning. They'd go out and find the manna. Keith Green, he sings a song about that too, okay? He, uh, he talks about how they began to complain about the manna all the time, you know? We have manna morning, noon, and night. We have manna burgers. We have banana bread. We have, you know, manicotti. You know, that, it's just, you know, it's a, but, but, but we get this spiritual nourishment from the bread of life himself. And I want to show you something. This is, this is definitely speaking of that great banquet feast that we get to experience in Isaiah 25 talks about when, we, when he returns, this great banquet feast. But we also can and should be experiencing it in part even now. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is an incredible promise. It's interesting. Paul actually prayed this verse in his prayer, and we, had, we didn't even talk. So I thought that was kind of cool. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So when they heard the true gospel, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So when you truly believe you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God himself. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Specifically, it says, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, the inheritance is speaking about that banquet feast, right? The great table, the just incredible eternity that's going to be awesome, right? That's what he's talking about. He says, that's the inheritance. But he says, we get the Holy Spirit now as a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance, okay? You know what a deposit is? Uh, the Greek word there is arabone, and it is a, a deposit, but it's, it's, it's like um, uh, when you're buying a house or a car or something like that. You give a down payment for that, right? So you're going to buy a house, you put down a down payment. The down payment guarantees that you're going to pay the rest, right? At least that's the way it's supposed to happen. But uh, with God, that is the way it happens, okay? He says the Holy Spirit is the down payment for the big feast that we get, right? Okay? So, but with God, he is trustworthy. But here's the deal, okay? A down payment is a real thing. The down payment is actual money you give, right? So we actually get real tastes of this banquet feast to come now in the Holy Spirit. 
When you receive the Holy Spirit, it's not just supposed to be something you believe up in your head. You're supposed to actually experience the incredible presence. I remember back in the day when I first got filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what, there's nothing like it. And to think that that's just a little taste of the big banquet feast, just a glimpse of the glory that we'll get to see with our eyes wide open when Jesus Christ returns. This is what he wants for us to have now. And to remind us that later this hidden manna, the banquet feast is coming, and you get a white stone. Kind of interesting. He's like, what's that all about, okay? White stone symbolizes purity and victory. But in the first century, there were special pebbles used for acceptance and entrance into a banquet by the victorious gladiators. So clearly, it's speaking about that banquet again, only spiritually, not the banquet the gladiators go to. But you get this white stone as a guarantee that you will enter into the banquet feast. That's what he's saying to these people at Pergamum. If you'll remain surrendered to him, if you're victorious, entrance into the messianic feast, the welcome, my good and faithful servant. That's what he's talking about here. And then he says, and on that stone there will be a new name. You get a new name. Daniel Aiken talks about this. He quotes Beal who says in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, to know someone's name, especially that of God, often meant to enter into an intimate relationship with that person and to share in the person's character or power. To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. Therefore, believers' reception of this name represents their final reward of consummate identification and unity with the intimate end-time presence and power of Christ in His kingdom and under His sovereign authority. The new name is a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed, without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible. It stands in contrast to the satanic name that unbelievers receive, which identifies them with the character of the devil and with the ungodly city of man. We get this new name. Jesus will nourish us. He will receive us into the banquet feast and acknowledge us as his. That's his promise, the challenge, the reward to those who don't compromise. He said, don't compromise. To the right or the left. You know, as a pastor, I see so much. And I wonder, why are some people absolutely delivered from their past? It's like radical. I mean, it doesn't matter how bad off they were in the past. They're just absolutely changed, like night and day. And their lives are lived for Christ. It doesn't mean they don't ever have any problems. But their lives are lived for Christ, and there's this dramatic change. Whereas other people just seem to be stuck. In the same things, the same things over and over, falling into it. Why is that? And I think in part, and I don't think there's any, you know, final, you know, this is true for everybody, but in part it's because of this issue of surrender. No compromise. Pastor Dan says, Jesus is not a genie in the bottle you summon when you want him. He's the Lord. Will you surrender to him? 
Keith Green said, no compromise. Andrew Murray said, absolute surrender. And Jesus said, die to self. So what's your decision? Let's pray. Father, every one of us confess that we've all fallen short of your glory. We've all compromised to various degrees and different things in our life. And, but we don't want to anymore. So we cry out to you, oh God, help us. Transform us from the inside out. Make us like Jesus. Do your great work. We invite you to come now. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Radically transform us so that we'll be different when we walk out of this place because we're totally surrendered to you. No compromise anymore. Anymore. And this is for you and for your glory. Through your word. We pray these things and ask you for these things in Jesus' name.